If you have a Bible, if you would, we're going to finish up Nehemiah today. And uh, if you turn first to Nehemiah chapter 8, please. And let's pray. Father, we look to you, Lord, that you'll speak your word to us and help me to speak your word clearly and, and that we'll all be edified and build up, able to see how you deal with your people and how you built your people up. And you'll build us up the same way. And I thank you that you'll show us that in Jesus' name. So we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah here for the last five weeks. This will be the fifth message on it. So we know he's overseeing the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem that had been torn down by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 587. And he comes back with the third group of people returning to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. So the task, you got about the building, and that task is done in an amazing 52 days. Despite the many attempts of the enemy, the enemy tried many times to stop it and almost succeeded. But God said those walls would be built, and they were built. And so once the walls are completed, once that city was secure, the people we saw last week, they all gathered together on the first day of the year, and that's how chapter 8 begins. And so they get together on a public street known as the Watergate, and they all had one purpose for meeting there. All united with an expectation to do what? To hear the word of God. That's what they came for. They're excited. So listen, let me just put it this way. The first half of Nehemiah is about building the wall, the physical wall. And we learned some lessons through that, didn't we? How that all took place. But the second half of the book is about building up and reshaping God's people. And he wants to make them, God wants to make them more permanent than the wall. And the primary focus we'll see today, so we've already dealt with chapter 8, but the primary focus of chapters 8, 9, and 10, the primary focus is reading, understanding, and applying the Word. So I heard a man say this once. They used to give you, when you'd get a new Bible, they'd give you what was called a Scripture Union card. Put in the new Bible, and it had in there three rules on how to read your Bible. And the first was, read it through. The second was, pray it in. And the third was, live it out. And that's what we have here, we're going to see in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. Because God is going to establish his people, establish them as his people through the word. And chapter 8, as we saw last week, that was read it through. Isn't that what they did? Stood there for however many hours to hear that word read. Six hours, five to six hours to hear the word read. We're going to see today chapter 9 is pray it in. Pray that word in. And chapter 10 is live it out. And you'll see that before we're all done. So here we are in chapter 8. And the first thing they do, they gather together on that street. They're excited. And they spake to Ezra, we said. And they say, bring out the book. They're eager because they can't wait to hear from God. So it's men, women, and it says all who could understand. And we understand that to be what? The little children. I'm not going to pick on any little kids today. Everybody relax. I had to give candy to the one I got last time. I felt so bad about it, right? But they're all gathered to hear God's word. And Ezra comes out with that word and puts that word before him. And what did it say that they all did? Out of respect and awe for the word of God, they all stood up and listened for that entire time. And it said they listened attentively. They gave heed. 
And remember, we were saying that on the parable of the sower of the seed, Jesus, how many times he's commanding, listen. He that has ears to hear, listen. Hear what's being said. And these people were. They were given their attention. They had respect. They're eager to hear it. And they are listening. Listening with the intention of doing. So when said when they heard the word read, the Spirit of God did what? It convicted them. He convicted them of their sins. And they began to weep. Because they realized in hearing that word how far they had fallen short. And Nehemiah and the Levites had to quiet them down. It must have been quite a noise there. You imagine that, all those people, thousands of people weeping at one time because of conviction? I mean, only the Spirit of God, we said, could bring that about. And they had to quiet them down. They said, hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be grieved. They said, go home, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those that are poor. Why? He says, because this was a feast they weren't supposed to be mourning in, the Feast of Booths. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength or your stronghold. That's what it is. It wasn't a time right then. But what I thought was, to me, the best thing was, when you look in verse 12, what brought the people the greatest joy? It wasn't their eating. It wasn't the wall. And it says in verse 12, all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Why? They were happy because it says they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Does that bring you the greatest joy in your life? When you hear teaching and you know God's speaking to you and that burning in your heart and things become alive, that should be the greatest joy in a Christian's life, more than anything else. It really should be. And so they came back for more, it says in chapter 8, seven days they came back. And during that seven days, they realized something. They realized that they had not been observing the Feast of Booths, as it was called. And so we read there towards the end of chapter 8, they go out and they're gathering all kinds of branches from different kinds of trees to build booths. And it said there was booths everywhere, up on the roof, in the street, in the corner, you know, in your backyard and, you know, Joe's basement, I guess, whatever. I mean, there's just booths everywhere because they're doing what? They're obeying what God had said. People listening with the intention of obeying. And as soon as they say, this is what we should be doing, they did it. That was their heart. So it's a time of joy. So you got a picture here in chapter 8, and you got these people hearing God's word, living in these booze, and feasting with joy. What a life, right? <laughs> well, that ends here. Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 18. It says, also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, they read in the book of the law of God. It's prominent, and it will be in, in Israel from here on out. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manor. Okay, so now we're going to be basically dealing with chapter 9 today. And chapter 9, it picks up two days after this. The feast is over. They've torn all the booths down, and the leaders call the people together. They say, we're going to have a special day, and this is going to be a day of fasting, of repentance, of meditation, and prayer. But once again, at the center of all of this is the Word of God. And so look in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled, brought together again, with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of their God one-fourth part of the day. 
and another fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Fourth part of the day, that's three hours, because the day was 12 hours long. So a fourth of it had been three. Three hours they heard the word, and three hours they confessed and prayed before the Lord. Can you imagine that? Our church getting together for three hours to pray before God and confess our sins? Wow. Never heard of anything like that. But they're coming before the Lord. What we need to see here in this verse 1, they're coming before God in true humility, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes or dirt on their head. And this wasn't just an outward show. They weren't just doing this like the Pharisees did in the New Testament, but this was a sign of the true humility of their hearts, an outward sign. And fasting does what? It's just showing, hey, we are totally dependent on God and on his mercy. That's why they were fasting. And that sackcloth was made from black goat's hair. Terribly uncomfortable to wear. It's like a, wearing a burlap bag. But it's an outward sign of true remorse and godly sorrow. Sackcloth is always, we saw it in Jonah, sackcloth is always a sign of biblical repentance. And the dirt on their heads, they had a place in the city where the garbage and the dung was burned and became ashes. And it was considered detestable, that area. And they would get their ashes and their dirt from there. It's the lowest it gets. And they're putting that on their heads. And why? Because that is a sign of mourning. So they're saying, we're dependent on you, God. <laughs> and we repent and we're mourning over our sins. That's the attitude of their hearts. And verse 2 tells us they removed all strangers. They're saying, this is just for God's people. This assembly right here is not anybody else going to be involved in it. This is just God's people. And it says they stand there confessing their sin is what it says. And as one man said, I like this. He said, Nehemiah. 8, the chapter we saw before, it focuses on God's word to them. But now the people respond with their words to him. Words of genuine sorrow about their sins and grateful remembrance of God's grace. That's what's going on here. You'll see in chapter 9. So look in verse 3. It says, they stood in their place and rendered the book of the law of their God one-fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Stood again and heard the word for three hours. I mean, this is just what's in their heart to do at this time. They're hearing the word constantly for hours, staying in there hearing it. And it has an impact on their hearts. Once again, they're listening intently as they're hearing this, and deep conviction comes over them from hearing the word. Because what? The word for them was like a mirror, like it should be for us. It's showing them their flaws as they're hearing it read. Where their lives fell short. And through that hearing that word, this is what should happen to us. They're experiencing the holiness of God and hearing his requirements. Hearing where they had fallen short. The holiness of God. And that led to the humble confession of sin. But it wasn't just that. They also, or it says, they're worshiping the Lord. Doesn't it say that? And another fourth part at the end of verse 3, they confessed, but it also says they worshiped the Lord. Because then hearing the word, it also, they're hearing about the character of God, his ways and his attributes, his power, his love, his justice, his holiness, his wrath, but also his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. They're hearing all these things about God. And every time that we open this word of God, we should be brought face to face with the living God of the Bible. 
which is what happened to them. We should learn more, something more about him every time we do. Just like we're going through the Gospel of Mark, it should be opening us to us the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, his greatness, his power, what he did. And it should cause us to worship. And that's all part of this prayer that we have. This is what we have, Nehemiah chapter 9. It's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. Now you understand that most of the prayers that we read in the Bible, they're not writing out everything word for word what was literally said. It's generally going to be a condensed version. But this is the longest recorded prayer we have. And it's an example of true prayer. True prayer. Wonder at the being of God is what we're going to see and confession of sin. And that's the essence, isn't it, if you think about it, of what? Of the Lord's Prayer that we have in Matthew chapter 6. How does that prayer begin? It begins with all of who God is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That hallowed is our word for holy, reverent. You come before God. When you come before him, pray you shouldn't jump right into what you need, should you? You should give him the reverence that's due, the God of heaven. Holy is your name. That's the way we should start. That's the way Jesus taught us to start. So let me ask you, do you speak to God about his majesty and his holiness, that he's your father, but yet you owe him that respect? And then what do we know comes next? So we're saying in this prayer in chapter 9, we're going to see it's the wonder of God and then confession of sin. Well, what comes down, not too much further in, our, in the Lord's prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But at one point, it's forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the warning is, if we don't do that, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your debts. So one thing I want to say here, we haven't looked at this prayer. It would take a long time to read it all. But the source, and we'll see it here, the source and content of this long prayer is the Word of God. So the Levites are the ones that are leading the people in this prayer, and they know the Word of God inside out. But these men weren't just dry bookworms. That's not what it was all about with them. So they had memorized the words that they preached, and they let it do a work in their hearts. The work, the Word had transformed their lives. Now Ezra, the scribe, is their leader. He's their leader. And it says back in Ezra 7, I always like this. As a teacher, he says this, For Ezra had prepared his heart to study the law of the Lord. And he didn't just stop there, did he? It says he prepared his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And then to teach Israel in Israel statutes and judgments. Because it's not only just somebody that reading the Word has an academic knowledge, you have to have somebody that's living it too. And then when that's the case, they've read it, they've studied it, they've lived it, they're able to teach it. That's the way it works. That's the way it is with Ezra. That's the way it is with these men that are reciting this prayer and put it together. So this prayer, if you look at it, if you take the time to study it, it's a beautiful woven tapestry of biblical quotes Almost every sentence is a direct biblical quote, images and phrases. Many times they are quoted literally word for word in this prayer. For instance, if you're in chapter 9, look down in verse 17 at the very second half of verse 17, where it says there in the prayer, but thou art a God ready to pardon, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. The, that is almost directly Joel 2.13, Exodus 34.6, and about four other places in the Old Testament where it talks about God being gracious and ready to forgive. But it's almost exactly Joel 2.13. This prayer is just steeped with the Word. So we're saying the Word is the basis for change in their lives. They hear it. They're praying it in. They're praying the Word. They're praying the Word of God. Look in verse 18 right down there. So the grace and mercy of God is contrasted with Israel's disloyal statement in verse 18. So he said, you're a God that's slow to anger. But he says, yea, but when, verse 18, when they, Israel, had made them a molten calf and said, this is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. Do you know what that is? That's another direct quote. It's in a prayer. That's Exodus 32.8. And I could go on and on and on. I just don't want to put everybody to sleep with all these examples of these quotes. But there's just two of them. There's just two examples. So in this prayer, they're quoting the word of God. And that's a great example. What we have here is a great example of using the Bible in our prayers. Have you ever done that? You know, you can use verses from the Bible to express your heart to God if you're doing it sincerely. Did you ever think about that? Has no one ever done that in here? Actually, we do it probably more than you think. Can we pray like this? Father, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That is your desire and that is my desire. And can you make that happen here in Jesus' name? What's wrong with that? That's praying the word. Or Father, you say, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. And right now I am in deep trouble and I ask you to deliver me. And when you do, I will glorify your name. What's wrong with that? Reminding God of his word, encouraging yourself as you pray that way in the prayer. I took a class at the seminary on spiritual disciplines. I'll be honest with you, when I went into that class, I'm like, man, I don't know about this. They're going to teach me how to you know, spend time with God. Actually, the class was very good, and I really liked the teacher. It wasn't just some academic class. And one day, I think it was like Thursday, it was a five-day class. On Thursday at lunch, he says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to send all of you out. I want all of you to find some quiet place on this campus. I don't care where you go. You can stay in the classroom. I don't care where you go. I want you to find a quiet place. I want you to pick out a psalm, any psalm, and I want you to make that psalm your prayer. And at first, I'm like, I hate this kind of stuff. I've never done anything like that. But I'm like, you know what? It can't hurt. It ain't gonna hurt me. Plus, you know, I gotta, I gotta do something for the next half hour. And I went and did that. I made a psalm my prayer. Turned it into my prayer. And I'm telling you, it was great. I actually liked it. So, couldn't you make a psalm? Listen to this. I picked out one. Couldn't you make this your prayer? Pray this prayer. Psalm 86. If you're in a severe trial and really struggling, Listen to this. Make this psalm your own. Pray it yourself. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trust in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice in the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. In Jesus' name.
Why couldn't you pray that? Make it your own. What would be wrong with that? I think God would hear that. And so many times when we have prayer meeting, I mean, we, we will quote verses, we will quote the Bible in our prayers to remind God of what we're trusting Him for, do it all the time. And that's scriptural and it's good. And so what, I'm just saying this, this prayer in Nehemiah 9 is basically made up of God's Word. It was made up of the Word that the people had been hearing in their presence. And so this prayer begins in, in verse 6. In verses 6 through 15, it basically, those verses show us what God is like. Now, we're not going to read through all of those, okay? But look in verse 6. And this is where the Bible begins. <laughs> thou, even thou art God alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou pre preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Isn't that where the Bible begins? We're basically going to get a history of the Bible from Genesis up to the point of the Exodus, the first five books. That's what we're getting here, a biblical history. And it starts off with, who's the God we're dealing with? We're saying this is the word to extol worship. He's the God that created the heaven and earth. A powerful creator is what we're learning here. And that is where we said prayer should begin. Acknowledging the God that made the heaven and the earth. He controls everything because he created everything that is in them, the heaven and the earth. Nehemiah is saying, look, the same God that moved the king of Persia's heart to let you come back is the same God that created the heavens. And so we need to remember that, don't we? When we go to God in prayer, right? That the God who made Everything out of nothing can control a world that is filled with terrorists and whoever wins this election. He can handle all that. The God that made everything, right? And he moves on here. I'm, I'm not spending a lot of time on these. That's a whole message in itself you could have on verse 6. But verses 7 to 8, he goes on to say, You're a God that chose Abraham, brought him forth out of Ur of Chaldees, gave him the name Abraham found his heart faithful before thee and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed and has performed thy word, for thou art righteous. And so he's moving on. He's saying this same God that created everything chose Abraham your father. He was a nobody. Took him out of Ur Chaldees and changed his name. Because it has it right there. He chose Abram. But then he became Abraham, right? Because that powerful God that created the heavens and the earth created a baby for this man when he's 100 years old and his wife's 90, right? A son at 100 years old and gave a covenant to him. He said, I'm going to give you all these nations. You will inherit. All these people won't be here, but you and your seed will inherit it. And let me ask you, did he do what he promised? That's what we see here. Look what it says at the end of verse 8. Thou hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. And so God does everything he says. Why? Because he's able to, he's powerful, but he's also righteous. He's not going to lie to us, right? Where can we get from that? If God chose you out of this world like he chose Abraham, he is going to finish that work in you. That's what he's saying here. He said, I chose Abraham and I finished the work that I promised. I brought his people into that land, multiplied like I told him I would, because I am righteous. 
And so that's how we can sing, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We can bank on that. That's what we're seeing here. And then on the rest of these verses, 9 through 15, we won't read those. It's telling about God's mighty redemptive provision. He looked down, it says, and you can see he saw the affliction of his people while they were slaves in Egypt. And he stepped down in there, saw his people's affliction and demonstrated his power and his love. Parted the Red Sea, it says, gave them a cloudy pillar during the day, a pillar of fire by night. Came down, it says, on Mount Sinai, audibly spoke the Ten Commandments. Gave his law, a good law, to Moses, his servants, for the good of his people. Provided manna from heaven, water from the rock. That's what it's saying all there through verses 9 through 15. He's a living, active, redeeming God. It's extolling him. And so what's happening here? These people, they, he's having, through this prayer, these people are doing what? They're looking back aren't they? Looking back and seeing the great salvation that God provided. <laughs> and what about us? What can we look back and see? What great salvation are we looking at? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where his power was demonstrated there, and his love. The same way, right? So looking back, I'm saying, that's what they did here from verses 6 through 15. They're looking back, and looking back and seeing what's behind you can save your life. Did you know that? Now Israel bought these American F-16 fighter jets in the 1980s, and they made one simple modification. I remember reading this when I was a 20-year-old. You know what they did? One simple modification that saved countless lives. They put on those planes without having to go through all the bureaucracy, rear view mirrors. So they could see the enemy coming, right? And many of us are shot down because we do not have spiritual rearview mirrors. We don't see what's behind us. But what I mean by that is, just like Israel's doing here, they're reflecting on how God had blessed them. And that's what we need to do. We need to reflect with the Lord on how he's blessed us, how he's answered prayer, how he's seen us through all these years. Like the song says, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned what? I can depend on what? God's word magnifies it above his name. And so I would suggest this. Keep a journal. Keep a journal. I know somebody, they were having trouble at work. I'm having trouble at work, okay? It's a constant thing. I said, hey, did you pray about it? Yes. One day, did you pray about it? Yes. Did God help you? Did you get through the day? Did everything work out? Yes. Here's a journal. I want you to write it down. And every time you have a day where you pray and God is faithful, write it down. And then you have something to go back and look at. And then the next day comes up, think, wait a minute. No, I had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. God came through every time. Nothing to be nervous about. Amen? I can remember... When I first got in the faith message, I had this big long, I mean, it was two columns on a big piece of paper, things I'd ask God for. And my other column in here was when this prayer was manifested. And I kept that, I got it somewhere. I would go back to that many times to be encouraged because sometimes you tend to forget how faithful God has been. And so there's a time we need to look back and remember God's faithfulness, what he's done for us. Amen? Be a good thing to do.
So the people, the Levites, in this prayer, they're taking the people of Jerusalem back. You know how far back they're taking them? A thousand years to know of God's history. He's telling them, hey, the creator of the universe called your ancestor Abraham out of Ur and delivered his children through these mighty miracles from Egypt. Now, those people didn't live back then. None of them did, did they? They only know about God. Why? Because they're being told about the past, what the word of God said about him. And that tells them what they can trust him for in the future. Do you know that? We're looking at a book. This has been done for quite a long time. And yet we're looking at this and saying, this tells me what I can trust God for in the future. And so when we read the word, when we read the word, it answers a question. You know what the question it answers is? A simple one. Can I trust God? Can I trust the God that created the universe? Can I trust the God who sovereignly chooses his people? Can I trust the God who redeems his people at the cost of his son? That's the question that it answers. So when it says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Can we trust that God? Or is he going to withhold things from us? So we should, when we read the word, every time we read the word, we should be rediscovering the God that we serve. Rediscovering him every time we read the word. You know, the other night, we had devotions. I'm like, well, what do you guys want to read about? And my little boy John wants to read about Elijah on Mount Carmel. I didn't know why, so we started back when he first prayed that there wouldn't be any rain. And we read about how God stopped the rain, said there won't be any rain or water for three years. And then we read how through that he sends him and the ravens come and feed Elijah. Then he's sent to a widow and her son. And miraculously, God provides her meal and oil. It never stops. You're reading all that, right? The boy gets sick and dies. There's a lot going on there in just a few chapters. He gets sick and dies. Elijah lays on him three times. God brings him back to life. Then he meets the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they set up all that and fire from heaven. I mean, think of what all would have been happening then. Comes down and consumes the sacrifice. It says it consumes the stones that the altar was built on. And then it proceeds to lick up all the water that's right there in the sight of all Israel. And he says, who are you going to serve now? Well, they obviously knew. Oh, yeah. And then guess what happens next? The three-year drought's over. You know why that happened? Baal was supposedly the god of rain that would send rain, and he's showing his power over Baal. He's already demonstrated that, and he's saying, now I'm the one that dictates when this rain comes. And you know, I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, this is building faith in me. That's seeing the God of the Bible, the God of the past. This is true history we're reading here. And this is the God we can trust for the future. And you say, well... Yeah, that's the prophet Elijah. Ain't no prophet Elijah. Well, you sure aren't no prophet of Elijah. No, I'm not any prophet of Elijah. You're right. But what does James 5 say about that? Is there anything special about him? When it says, pray for one another that you may be healed, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Just like us, he's saying he's flesh and blood. Nothing special about him. And it says he prayed earnestly 
that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So the question is not, is Elijah special? The question is, can we trust the God of Elijah? Can we trust the God of the Bible? And I would say, yes, we can trust that God. We can. So in verses 6 through 15, that's the worship. That's the worship that's taken place. The God of history is the center of this prayer. He's worshiped through this prayer. If you go through there in the King James, it's all vows. Thou means you. And he's the center of this prayer. He's saying, you alone are God. You made the heavens and the earth. You chose Abram. You showed signs and wonders. You divided the sea. You led them in the wilderness. You gave them bread from heaven and water from the rock. You are the great God. That's the center. That's the worship of this prayer. And they're using the word to do it. And that's where our focus should be, on God. He's the one, the powerful, faithful, promise-keeping God. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That's the one. Focus on him. And then after that, verse 15, from verses 16 to 35, the prayer changes. And now it becomes confession. So we saw early in verse 3, it says they worshiped and they confessed. And that's what we have in verses 16 through 35. They're confessing their sins. This whole prayer speaks of the goodness of God all throughout it. Because the way it's done is it's comparing the goodness of God with the response of the people. And so what this prayer does, it says, Lord, you are like that, but we are like this. Or it says, Lord, you've done that, but we have done this. That's the way it's done. Look in verse 15. It says, you gave bread from heaven for their hunger. But then in verse 16, it says, but they and our fathers. You did that, but we did this. They and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments. That was their response. And look in verse 17. It says, They refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. They did that. But here's what God did in contrast. But you, in contrast to them, they refused to obey, stiffened their necks, had a rebellious heart. But you, it says, are to God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and forsakest them not. In verse 18, it says this, they made them a golden calf and said in God's face, this is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and has wrought great provocations. But it's compared to, they did that yet, verse 19, you and thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. And it goes on for a while and talks about all the good things, despite what they had done to him, basically spat in his face. And it goes on to talk about all the good things he had done for them, all the provision for 40 years that they didn't deserve. It talks about his spirit instructing them, manna, water. It talks about clothes that didn't wear out for 40 years. Now, some people, I think they like to wear their clothes for 40 years. But here, God supernaturally preserved them. And it goes all the way through verse 25. From 19 through 25, talks about the goodness of God in comparison to the sin of the people. 
And it talks about them possessing the land in verse 25. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards, olive yards, fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. And then it goes into again comparing how good God was to them to verse 26. Nevertheless, despite all of what you did, Lord, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee and they wrought great provocations. And then it says in verse 28, but after they had rest, this is going into the book of Judges, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, leftest thou in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, you heard them from heaven. And many times did you deliver them according to their mercies and testified against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet God's trying to help them get their attention. It says, yet. They dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he'll live. And they withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years did you forbear them and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet they would not give ear, and therefore thou gavest them into the hand of the people of the lands." And so confession is made for the sins of the fathers. And he's saying it's all magnified their sin in light of the goodness and the mercy of God. That just magnifies their sin. God was so good to them, did everything for them that he could. Even when they were disobedient, he's gently trying to get their attention through the prophets. And it says, yet they stiffened their necks and hardened their hearts. Continually they did that. And here's the thing. Our sins aren't any different. And this prayer mirrors our lives in more ways than I think we'd like to admit. So we don't in any way deserve the mercy of God either before or after our salvation. But here's what the fact of the matter is, right? God in his great mercy and love has graciously forgiven us and kept us. Has he not? Just like Israel. And so if we received any chastisement, and all of us had better have received some kind of chastisement. We don't have anything to complain about because all we got is what we deserved and actually less. And look in verse 33. Look what it says. Howbeit you are just in all that is brought upon us, for you have done right. And here's their confession. You have done right, but what? We have done wickedly. That's their confession. That's the confession of their sin. And so here, what we have here, without looking back through all that, the confession of their sins here in this chapter are general. We've cast your law behind our backs. We've stiffened our necks. It doesn't talk about specific ways that they sinned here. What they're saying is because of his willingness to forgive his people in the past, these people through this prayer, they're trusting because of the past, if they repent, that he'll have mercy on them. Look in verses 36 and 37. He says, Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that you gave unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yields much increase unto the kings whom you set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at thy pleasure, and we are in great distress. 
And so they're looking in faith. They're saying, you have forgiven our fathers in the past, and we are right now an oppressed people, and we're in distress, and we need your help. And they're trusting that he'll forgive their sins that they've had now. And so what they do is they go on and they sign a covenant and pledge to walk in the law of God. That's what verse 38 says. And because of all this, because of all of what we just prayed, they said, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal into it. And so we move into chapter 10, and what you have there in those first 27 verses, it lists all the names of the people that signed. And the ones that signed it, they entered into an oath to do all that Moses commanded in the law. And they said, if we don't, we will be cursed. We're putting ourselves under a curse. And look what it says there in verse 29. And they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. So the rest of the chapter, you know what it does? We're talking about application. It gives the specific sins that they had been committing, that they've repented of, that they're going to walk in. That's what we have in the rest of that chapter, not general sins. Because God's word will do what? It will tell us specifically where we're missing it. It'll pinpoint our sins so that we can live. He doesn't deal with this in just an abstract, general way. You ever seen it at Apollo 13? All of a sudden, there's this sudden explosion on that Apollo mission, and they're dealing with a general problem. The spacecraft is out of control, and gas, they can see gas is pouring out of it, and they were on the brink of death. We got a problem, Houston. Houston had to pinpoint where that trouble was for those men to be able to live. They had to isolate it so they could deal with it, and that's what God will do for us. He will pinpoint our sins if we get in the word, right? He'll cut to the heart of the problem. Hebrews says, for the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word will convict you to the core of a specific sin when it's being taught, right? And so what were the specific sins? There's three specific sins these people dealt with here. And the first one is in verse 30 of chapter 10, mixed marriages. The law prohibited the Jews, in verse 30 there, from marrying foreigners. Jews had to marry Jews. And don't we have the same thing? Aren't Christians supposed to marry Christians? <laughs> and the second thing was the Sabbath observance in verse 31. There was rules for working, for buying and selling on the Sabbath and for the seventh year. They repented of that. They said, this is what we'll do. This is the change we'll make. And the third thing was, verses 32 on, it's too much to read, is rules for temple worship. And so you have three things there, right? Mixed marriages, the Sabbath, and temple worship. They said, we will do this. Because we realize we haven't done any of these things. They had to get rid of all their foreign wives. We know about that. They weren't observing the Sabbath correctly. And they let the temple go to pot. And so they changed all that. And they, because of they heard the word and they specifically knew those things were wrong, they repented. And they said, we will do that under the oath of a curse. And they'll obey and be blessed. And listen, that is like I said, that's what happens when we read the word. It'll pinpoint where we're missing it. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you can't get very far and you're going to get convicted. 
You read Matthew 5 and it's going to convict you about your anger, your lust. In the chapter 6 about your worry. You read Romans 13, which is a good thing to read now in election time because we can tend to say things about politicians and get back and read Romans 13, read Peter, and you'll be convicted. Yeah, I've right. been yeah, letting my mouth get a little loose here. You go into Ephesians 4 and it's going to talk about lying, stealing, unedifying speech, unwholesome speech, bitterness, malice, covetousness, unforgiveness. But guess what? Just like with the Jews, if we don't read it, we'll never discover what we need to change. We've got to read it or we'll be like the Jews when they were in captivity. They were not hearing the word and they were living in sinful ignorance. And you say, well, ignorance is bliss. I'm not going to be responsible for what I don't know. Well, that's not true. That's not true. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We've heard that many times. But you know what it goes on to say in Hosea 4, 6? Because you have rejected knowledge, God says, I also will reject you. So we can't say, well, I'm not going to read the word. I'm going to stay away from it. And that way I'm, I'll be okay. Yeah, well, that's not going to work. Here's what we want to see. The Jews of Jerusalem, they had built a wall and they had built a temple. But it was not what was promised by the prophets. Not even close. Because they had prophesied of a glorious temple with the Lord reigning from his throne and that the people would be free from all oppression. They're crying out. We saw that at the end of chapter 9. They're still being oppressed. They're still waiting for the fulfillment of the promised glory. And they're still waiting. They're waiting as we read what we read here in Nehemiah. But what are they supposed to do in the meantime? How is God establishing his people? What is their responsibility while they're waiting? They're to obey the word and pray, to be ready. And listen, it's the same for us. We likewise are awaiting a promised kingdom, right? The promise of our coming Lord to reign on his millennial throne. And we're waiting for that eternal city of Revelations 21 and 22. And while we're waiting, what are we to be doing? What are we to be doing? The same thing. The same thing the Jews were supposed to be doing, obeying the word and praying. So if you would put something there and turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. And here we have the two men building a house. Jesus says in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine, talking about all of what he just said in the Sermon on the Mount, and the one that hears them and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house on a rock. Rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But everyone that hears these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a fool which built his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell. And it says, great was the fall of it. So both men heard the word. Both of them heard the word. One obeys and one doesn't. And what is going to expose the hearers? There's a storm coming. And do you know what the storm is? You know what the storm is? Judgment day. A solemn day that we all have to face because look at that. What is the therefore in verse 24 before Jesus gives that parable? What's that referring back to? 
it's referring back to verses 21 through 23, that not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And he says, many will say to me when? In that day. That's the day of judgment. Many, he says, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then he says, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The most terrible words a person could ever hear spoken to him. I never knew you. You don't want to hear that from the Lord. And that's what the storm is. It's judgment day. And judgment day is the same day that that city that everyone's looking for is going to come. What the Jews were looking forward to, what Abraham was looking forward to, and it's what we're looking forward to in Revelation 21 and 22. And what is the only way to be ready for that day? It's to be hearing and doing the word, obeying the word of God, showing that Jesus is the Lord of our life by the way we live. Not like the fool who neglects the word, thinks the word's no big deal, doesn't have a desire to change. That person, we just read it, will not survive the storm. Not that they're going to have a bad day. They will not enter the kingdom of God. They will be the foolish virgin. So, if you go back to Nehemiah, and I know it's a little sobering, but probably the way it ought to be. Here's a warning. Here's a little addition to what all happened. And here's how we're going to close this out. You got Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah had to go back to Babylon. He promised the king, I will just be there so long building that wall, and then I'll come back to you. So he had to go back to the king. And then 12 years later, he comes back. He left Jerusalem for 12 years. 12 years later, he comes back to these people. So we see that in verses 6 to 7. It says, But in this time was I not at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days the king let me go back. And I came to Jerusalem, verse 7. I came to Jerusalem. And when he comes back, he is hot. He is hot for what he finds, because he finds one, Tobiah, his enemy, has set up shop in the temple storage room. And that's in verse 8. He says, and it grieved me sore when I found Tobiah was in this temple room making it his little home. He said, it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast out all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Tossed him out of there. And do you know what else he was angry about? Remember the three sins that the people had repented of and signed an oath to walk in? Remember the three sins? Within 12 years, they're backslidden. 12 years, they're right back in that sin because that's what we have here in chapter 13. Talking about all three in verses 10 to 13 there, it talks about the temple is being abused again. And he's hot. Look at that, Nehemiah verse 11. Then contended I with the elders and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. That was one thing. And the second, the, the Sabbath's being violated again. 
And that's verses 15 to 22. And look what it says in verse 17. Here he is. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? And back to mixed marriages, that's verses 23 to 28. Look what he says in verse 23. And in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. In verse 25, I contended with them and cursed them. And smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. And that's a warning to all of us, isn't it? What we see happen here. When you make an oath, you make a covenant to God to walk in sins. We have to ask ourselves, are there areas we've committed to the Lord to obey years ago, months ago, or just a few days ago, and you're already back in disobedience? It should be a warning, because awaiting people are what? They're a people that are obeying when? Today, Right? We've got to be obeying today, not obeying last year, last month, or yesterday, but today. So the wise builders that we read about in Matthew 7 are the ones that are hearing and obeying today. Like we've been talking about, the good and honest hearts that embrace the word, that understand it, and then bear fruit. Amen? Amen. It's the way it's got to be. So what do we see there in Nehemiah 9? We need to be eager to hear the word. They were still just as eager to hear that word as they were when it all started, that first day they met in Nehemiah 8. And then we have to let it, when we hear the word, let it inspire us in prayer, either to worship and trust the God that it describes unto us, like it says at the beginning, thou, even thou art Lord alone. Let the word do that to you. Or allow it to show us where we're falling short as it exposes us oh man, I've been critical of leadership. I'm convicted about that. Then make the change and stick with it. Be building your house. So we see in the word where we've fallen short, let's repent what they did there. Confess our sins and start bearing fruit. And so how do we approach our Bibles? I'll end with this. We read it through. We pray it in. And then we live it out. Amen? Do that. We'll be all right. People that do that, We'll just confess that's all of us here, right? People that do that will survive the storm Amen. of Matthew chapter 7. <laughs> Let's pray. And Father, thank you. You've made the word central in the life of Israel at the time of Nehemiah. Lord, I ask that you'll continue to make your word central to all of our lives here so that we can know who you are, Lord, through your word, that we can fear you, trust you, and adore you. And also that you can just show us through that word how you want us to live as your people. And when we fall short, God, I ask that you'll give us the grace to repent and to confess and to walk in the light you've given us so that we can be a ready people when you return. A people prepared for the storm that is coming. The day when all are going to have to stand before you and give account of our lives. So I just ask you, Lord, you'll help us to desire your word, and more than that, Lord, desire to walk in the truth we read in it. And I thank you that you'll do that for all of us here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.